We are going to spend some time in the little book of Titus today, so if you uh, would like, you can join me there in the book of Titus. And I have somewhat of an object lesson to uh, start out with here today, and uh, this is actually something that Faith, my wife Faith and I, heard somewhere along the way, and I don't remember where, but we've adopted it for our own, to help our own communication with each other, and also in working with individuals who are having a hard time communicating and sometimes are not getting along, whether it's a married couple or a parent and young person or something like that. So what I'd like you to do is, is uh, just kind of work with me here, okay? So this is not going to be, uh, um, uh, well, anyway, just work with me, all right? So I want you to look at, at what I'm holding up here and just look at, look at the front as it's, as it's facing you. And uh, it's a rock, okay? That's what it is. It's a rock in my hand here. And, and what you can see right there, okay, facing you, I'd like to ask you a couple of uh, multiple choice questions, all right? So the best you can tell, the best you can tell. Would you say that the surface of this is rough or smooth? So multiple choice, two answers, A or B, rough or smooth. Um, what, do, what do you think? Just say it out loud all at once. It's okay. Okay. All right. Yeah. Now, some of you might say, well, it might not be, you know, uh, smooth as if you sanded it down with, with fine sandpaper or something. And you're probably right. So it's a little bit... A little bit subjective, but generally speaking, I think most of us would agree it's, it's fairly smooth. All right, uh, would you say that it is um, colorful or plain? Would you say it's colorful or kind of plain? All right, anybody think it's colorful? It's okay if you do. Okay, all right. My neighbor and friend Vern thinks it's colorful. Okay, some of you, the rest of you may think it's kind of, kind of plain, right? Now, that, that's a little bit subjective too, isn't it? Because, well, it's sort of gray, brown, whatever you want to call it. That's a color, so it uh, looks somewhat colorful. All right, so different ideas there, all right? Um, how about this one? Would you say that it's beautiful um, or unattractive, ugly? Let's put it that way. Is it beautiful or ugly? How many think it's beautiful? Okay. How many think it's, uh, it's just kind of plain or ugly? Okay, all right, yeah. So some differences there, right? All right. So, so we're, we're looking at this, and, and I'm just going to tell you my opinion. I would say that it is smooth and that it is um, not, not really colorful, not a bright color, so kind of plain. And I, would, I wouldn't call it ugly, but it's, it's not like super attractive, right? It's not like, oh, wow, that's, that's beautiful, right? Okay. Now I'm going to turn it around, and uh, some of you might have caught, caught a little glimpse of this already, but this is the other side, and... Um, Anybody know what this is? Okay. And the kind of stone? It's purple. It's my birthstone. It's amethyst. All right, this is amethyst. My brother gave this to, uh, to me. So, um, All right, let's talk about this side. Let's talk about this side of, it, of the rock. And uh, let's see, what did I start with? Rough or smooth? All right, would you say this is the best you can tell, rough or smooth? Yeah, it's pretty rough, isn't it? Right? And it's, that's because it's crystals. It's very pointed and, and jagged with very... Uh, definite edges on it. So, so it's definitely not smooth. That would scratch you, right? That's, that's rough. Okay, so 
So that's rough. Uh, would you say that it is, um, what was the second one? Colorful or plain? Okay, okay. Some say plain. I heard a plain. I heard, I think, I think the colorfuls have it. Uh, I think you guys won the vote on that. And beautiful or, or ugly? Okay, all right. Again, some people just see a little differently, right? Okay. So, so my point is, is not so much about all of those little differences, although that, kind of, that can kind of make a point as well. But, but the point about one side being very different from the other side. So this side, I would say, is uh, it's smooth and it's, and it's plain, it's not colorful, and it's, it's just not real attractive. This side is, is uh, rough and it's colorful and I think it's beautiful, okay? So, but, but it's obviously different, right? It's obviously very different. So, so the idea of this is, I wonder if I can prop that right there for a minute. The idea of this is that if you have two people and one is on one side of this rock and the other one's on the other side of this rock and they're both talking about it, each person could be describing this, this rock in completely different terms, in, in very different ways, and could even disagree on what this rock looks like, and could even get into an argument about it and start, start fighting about it, right? Because they, they see it very differently. But if those two people could get together and say, you know what, let's take a piece of paper and let's write down all the descriptions of this rock and put it all into one list, together the two of them would develop an accurate and complete description of the rock. So in a communication setting, the idea is to learn to listen to the other person's perspective and how they describe what they see and then also share your perspective and describe what you see and that the two of you together can develop a complete picture. In fact, my wife and I developed a, a little way of, of doing this together. If we were arguing about something or trying to, you know, make a point and one of us might say, and usually she would be the one to think of it first, can I tell you about my side of the rock? In other words, would you listen to my perspective? Would you just just slow down and rather than trying to make your own point and, and say that this is the only right way, would you be willing to listen to the other side from my perspective? And that's very helpful, and that works in, in communication, right? So that's my little object lesson, whether that applies to, to marriage or friendship or whatever it might be. But I, I share that because of what we are talking about today from the book of Titus, and that is living with differences, living with differences. And, and it's interesting how in the church setting, uh, we, we have so many different backgrounds and experiences and um, ways that we, we view elements of life and ways that we understand different things. We are, we are different and I would say this, that the Bible contains essential fundamental truths, we call them doctrines, that we must understand and believe. And there are right ways to understand and interpret and apply those doctrines. But, but you also know that people have some different views or different interpretations, maybe on some secondary elements of, of those doctrines. We, we have differences in lifestyle choices, differences in, in things that are 
are important to us in the life of the church, different ways we apply the Bible to our lives. And some of those need to align very closely, very, um, very precisely to Scripture. But also, the Scripture gives us some room to have some different ideas on some of those things as well. And, and what can happen is that people can become focused on those differences. And those differences and their view on those differences can become the most important issues on their mind. And that can turn into a disunity among the people of God. And that's what Paul is urging Titus to address in the three verses that we're going to look at here this morning. Look with me at Titus chapter 3, starting with verse 9. Titus 3, verse 9. He says, but avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, we'll talk about that, contentions and strivings or quarreling about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Now, this is some strong medicine. And remember, the Apostle Paul is talking to Titus, who is on the island of Crete, who is setting up spiritual leadership in the church and, and discipling the people in the church and helping that church become healthy and strong so they can accomplish what God intends for them. And, and Paul is acknowledging and recognizing here that there's a potential for some problems. There's a potential on that little, that little island within, within that little community where Titus and those people were. And in their church, in their gathering of believers, there was potential for some problems. And he's addressing the issue of, of disunity. Unity in the church is critical. We believe right doctrines. We have, we have positional unity. But it's important to also communicate and fellowship and when necessary, disagree, but do it in the right way. Disunity erodes the health of the church and diminishes the effectiveness of the church. And I know that, that you are interested in that because this church is endeavoring to grow and be healthy and strong and move forward. So Paul addresses this with two instructions. They are actually commands. They are imperatives regarding living with differences. You see the first one in verse 9. Uh, he says, avoid. So that's an instruction. That's a command. That's an imperative. And you see the second one in verse 10, reject. So avoid and reject. And we're going to talk about each of them. The first imperative is about, we'll call it conversations that you should avoid. Conversations that you and I should not have. So he says, avoid these. Don't be part of these. Don't, don't start these conversations. Don't participate in these conversations. And let's talk about the terms that he uses. First of all, foolish disputes. Foolish disputes. Disputes, we might use the word debates. So you not only disagree, but you enter into a debate with someone over these issues. And it turns into a controversy. The word foolish means vain or empty, so it doesn't accomplish anything. So these are our debates that may just go back and forth or around and around, and they really don't get anywhere. There's not a problem with disagreeing or discussing areas of disagreement. 
But the problem is when we end up in, in debates with people that go back and forth and really don't accomplish anything constructive. And he's saying, avoid this. Don't start. Don't get involved. If you find yourself in it, then make sure that you, that you get yourself out of it. Extract yourself from it. Another kind of conversation to avoid is, is finding truth where there isn't any. Genealogies. Genealogies. You know what a genealogy is? That's a history of someone's family, uh, the ancestors that they came from. By the way, I, I um, accidentally included the word endless here. I was actually had in my mind the, the term that Paul used in 1 Timothy 1. He talks about the same thing. There he calls it endless genealogies. Here he just says genealogies. And, and there are lots of genealogies in the Bible. And, and the, the Jewish people saw these as very important. But, but what they did was they would look for hidden meanings. So they would, they would read the, the list of, of names of ancestors, and they would try to, to extract hidden meanings from those names or the relationships in those genealogies. Or they made up stories about them. They added meaning that wasn't there. So he's saying don't get involved in that. And certainly don't get into debates over that. Of, of drawing and extracting meaning out of something that's in the scripture that really is not there. And some people do that. Find so-called hidden meanings in scripture and bring them up and even make them points of, points of disagreement and contention. And, and what this can turn into then is that people who should be friends become enemies, become foes. That's what's contained in the word contentions. So, so people are having these conversations and these debates and they're going nowhere and they're disagreeing and end up dividing over these issues. And, and it can get emotional, right? People get intense about their closely held ideas. It can turn into accusations and hurt feelings and, and sarcastic replies and talking to each other in a condescending way. It can turn nasty very quickly. And lead to conflict. And if you've been around church life very long, you know this can happen, can it? People end up enemies who should be friends, who were friends. And there's a tension when they're together and they stop talking to each other and they avoid each other. He's saying, avoid those conversations. Don't get involved in those kinds of disputes. Now, I want to show you something. So just go back with me to to the book of Ephesians. We read from Ephesians a few minutes ago. And I think this is a good place to, to include what, what Paul was talking about to the Ephesian people because they had similar problems. And what I read to you in Ephesians chapter 2 is about the fact that God has brought the most hostile people groups in their time, the Jews and Gentiles, together into one new group. He called it one new man. That new man he was talking about is what we know of as the church, the body of Christ. So he brought those two groups of people together in the church. And so that, that was true on paper, but they had to learn to get along, didn't they? They had to overcome those instinctive, condescending, prideful, hostile views and treatment of each other and start to learn to, to live together and function in the body of Christ, in the church as one. So, so what I read to you in chapter 2 is about their, we might call it their theological unity, their positional unity, but now look at what he says in chapter 4. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. 
He says in Ephesians 4.1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And he's talking about their calling to, to Christ to be saved, but also included in that is their call to be one. Verse 2, look at the attitudes he describes with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Verse 3, endeavoring, working, putting effort into, keeping the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So he says you are one in Christ, but you have to put effort into maintaining and protecting and guarding that oneness. Verse 4, there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. So now he gets back to theology. Now he's saying these are the, the, the fundamentals of the faith. These are the, the foundations of your oneness, these, these theological truths. But before he gets back to that, he says you guys have to work at being one. You have to put effort into this. A couple of ways of thinking about this is that a church can be theologically sound. A church can be doctrinally healthy and have everything right on paper in the, in the statement of faith. And church members can give right answers about those, those truths and even quote the Bible verses. A church can be doctrinally sound, but also can be relationally sick. In other words, we can have everything right in our minds and on paper, and yet have problems in our relationships with each other, and be unhealthy in how we treat each other. That's what he's addressing in in verses 1, 2, and 3. And it's not that relationships are more important than theology, but isn't it interesting that here, as he, as he pivots from chapters 1, 2, and 3, the great theological truths, and now into church life and personal life, he starts out with relationships. And he says, yes, the, the, the fundamental truths are essential, but you've got to get along. You need to work at being kind to each other, being gracious to each other, loving each other. And making that unmistakably clear. So, so back to back to Titus, that, that's connected here because he's saying we need to be careful about the conversations we get into, the debates that we have, how we handle our disagreements, and not get to the point where we are being contentious or initiating contention, even to the point where brothers and sisters who should be one are now seeing each other as adversaries. That is not healthy. Then, uh, back in Titus 3, uh, he uses this, this phrase, strivings about the law. Um, so, taking sides on extra-biblical requirements. Uh, back in chapter 1, uh, verse 14, he refers to the commandments of men. He says in verse, chapter 1, verse 14, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. The commandments of men were were extra-biblical extra requirements. So, so the Jews had, the Jewish people, God's chosen people, had volumes, volumes of, of requirements that they had instituted in order to somehow aid them in not breaking the real laws of God. And what they did was they would not only talk about God's laws in his word, but they would say, you've got to keep these extra requirements too. 
And then we get into debates about that and disagreements about that. And they were based on human reasoning rather than on truth. You see the word strivings, it's, it's, it's used of, of combat. It means taking sides and, and fighting. In fact, uh, look, in, um, look in here in chapter 3, verse 2. Chapter 3, verse 2, he says, Speak evil of no one, be peaceable. That's the positive side of this word, is to be peaceable. And then he uses a form of the same word in verse 9. You see it as strivings or, or maybe quarrels in your translation. That's the opposite. It's actually a form of the same Greek word, but it's the opposite. So, so he says, you need to be peaceable and avoid these quarrels that can destroy that peace that you were supposed to have with other people. So it's fine to have disagreements, but we are not to get into arguments or debates or quarrels about them. And again, this is where I would say that there are fundamental truths in Scripture we need to agree on. There are also sometimes where we take something in Scripture and we apply it to our lives, and you develop an application for how you're going to live by that principle, that commandment, that instruction in Scripture, somebody else, even in the same church body, the same church family, might develop a different way of applying that in their life. And you don't see eye to eye on that. There are differences about that. It's absolutely not wrong to have a discussion about that. Even to talk about disagreement. But if it turns into a quarrel, if it turns into a, to a, a, uh, a heated debate, and those passions rise, and now two people that are supposed to be in unity become adversaries, he says that's a problem. So, so these are the kinds of conversations we are supposed to avoid. Why should we avoid them? Well, look at what he says at, at the end of verse 9. These are unprofitable and useless. So, so they don't do anybody any good. They don't achieve anything. They are, they are unprofitable. They're, they're empty. They don't contribute to unity. They divide people who should be united. So he says, avoid them for this reason. Now, occasionally, one person or a group of people in a church setting will become very intense and very passionate and might even be a source of contention in a church setting. And so Paul addresses that with Titus as well. And that leads us to the the second imperative. The first imperative is to avoid these conversations, the second imperative we see in verse 10 is to reject. So he says there are people that we should avoid as well. People that we should avoid. A divisive man. Now some translations here have the word heretic. Heretic. And that's an older translation. We often think of somebody who believes heresy as someone who believe something other than what the Bible teaches. So they believe false doctrine and maybe even promote or teach that wrong doctrine. We think of that as being heresy or a heretic, as that kind of person. But the, the, the root of this word is actually the idea of being somebody who causes division. It might be over a wrong belief, and they're influencing people toward that wrong belief, but it's not limited to just beliefs or doctrines. This is a person that incites disunity, and provokes disruption, and creates controversy. And sometimes it seems even thrives on that. That's their default mode, is is being adversarial. 
Now let me comment on this and say, talk about what, what divisiveness is not. I'm just going to list these out and, and make a few comments connected with them because we need to be careful to understand what, what divisiveness is not, right? Divisiveness is not offering suggestions to leaders. So good leaders, church leaders, welcome suggestions. And certainly I believe that is, that is the case here. Hopefully it is. And desire to implement them. But these suggestions are brought in a spirit of helpfulness, right? So, so divisiveness is not offering suggestions to leaders. Divisiveness is not having concerns about teaching or practices of the church. Anybody can have concerns, even disagreements about how things are done in the life of the church. The key is how that's handled, right? Divisiveness is not offering constructive criticism to another person or a church leader. Again, no problem with that. We should all be open to being evaluated um, and, and asked to consider whether something we are teaching or, or how we've made a decision or a direction that we are going is right or wrong. All of us need to be open to that constructive criticism. So divisiveness is not constructive criticism. Again, the key is how it's handled. So if somebody's talking about another individual or about a decision and, and spreading discontent and creating division over that, that's when it becomes a problem, right? Divisiveness is not seeking answers to questions about teaching or decisions or issues. Divisiveness is not disagreeing with another person or a leader. Okay? Divisiveness is not these things. So, so how would we recognize divisiveness? He says, a divisive man. I think it includes one or more of, of these indicators. Uh, divisive people do seem to thrive on controversy. That's a default mode. Um, divisive people take non-issues and make them issues. Divisive people talk about disagreements rather than to the people that they disagree with. Um, divisiveness involves going to one person about another person rather than to that person. Uh, divisiveness is not just a, a slip. It's something that happens regularly. A person seems to be in adversarial mode a lot. Uh, divisiveness disrupts unity. A divisive person disrupts unity, turns people against one another. Instead of avoiding um, disruption and, and debate, as verse 9 instructs, they initiate it. And people stop talking to each other. People become suspicious of one another. And rather than bringing people together, a divisive person raises issues that result in strife. And people distancing themselves from each other and creating discord. A divisive person competes with the leaders in a church setting. Those who have been selected by the church. Those who are appointed. And again, take an adversarial approach and often talk about in a negative way. It seems that divisive people want attention. Seek to have influence. Uh, might even might even try to pull people together and have little conversations or or group meetings talking about problems. 
And, and sometimes it's, it's couched in the terms of, well, I'm concerned about the church. I'm concerned about the church. Someone who truly loves the church will approach difficult issues and disagreements in a constructive way. Uh, divisive people attempt to influence others toward their view. Um, divisive people refuse to stop. Refuse to stop, right? So Paul here tells Titus to admonish them once and again, and a divisive person continues, will not listen to, will not heed those cautions and those warnings. One uh, writer on this says it this way, which I think makes us think about our attitudes. He says, uh, all too often in the church, those who are orthodox, in other words, those who have right beliefs or, or are, we might say, proud of those right beliefs, in ferreting out the so-called heretics, that is, people who hold different views from them, have become the divisive people. And that's what can happen. People can become so, so proud, in a sense, of their right positions that they create dissension and disrupt the unity of the church. Uh, look with me at Galatians chapter 5. Again, just back a few, few pages. Over to the left, the book of Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5, uh, 16, Paul says, Walk in the Spirit and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Look at verse 19. Galatians 5, 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions. And the last word in verse 20, my translation says heresies. That's the same word that he's using there in Titus chapter 3. So what he's saying here is that this kind of contention is not from God. It is not generated by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's work in you individually or the Holy Spirit's guidance in our church. It's not from him. It actually comes from the flesh. It comes from that selfishness and that pride. And so that's where we have to be on guard. We have to watch our own hearts. We have to to be vigilant about our own conversations, right? So we need to avoid the conversations, but also, he says, reject this kind of person. And we have to be willing to look in our own hearts and say, is there anything in me that's creating unnecessary division, disrupting the unity in how I think, how I speak to or about other people? If, If somebody believes strongly about a doctrine or a practice and believes differently from a church's stated position and the leaders in that church, then certainly addressing those issues, asking questions, getting clarification is appropriate. But if that person is disrupting unity, then that person needs to stop. That's what he's saying here. Needs to stop. Heed that admonition. And the other option is to is to leave voluntarily, to remove themselves from that situation. 
He, he tells Titus what to, what to do about them. So he says uh, back in Titus chapter 3 now, uh, he says in verse 10, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition. So, so in verse 10, he says there, there's first of all a, a verbal communication to this person in the form of a warning. So he's calling on Titus as a leader in the church to, to issue a warning to an individual who is persisting in this divisive behavior. And then he says a second admonition. So there's a second conversation. There's a second warning to this person. So a first warning, a second warning. And then he says, reject after the first and second admonition. In other words, if they don't heed, if they do not follow that instruction. Who does this? Well, Titus was a leader. He could do it. But I think it falls to anybody who's aware of divisiveness to do it. So whoever knows about it, how do you do this? Well, you can approach that person and say, what you're doing is wrong. You're creating division unnecessarily. Here's why. Here's what I'm seeing. Here's what I'm hearing. And and this needs to stop. So we issue that warning. And the reason is to protect the church, to protect the unity and the peace and the purity of the church. And the hope is that the person will listen after that first admonition and say, you know what, you're right. My spirit is wrong. My conduct isn't right. I'm causing division. I'm sorry. I repent of that and move forward in unity. That's the hope. And there is hope for a person at that point. Even after a second warning, there is the possibility that a person will respond to that. And that is the desire. And that is the hope. And we can, we can help someone do what is right. But if they continue, he says, then the church has to take action. And he says, reject that person after the first and second admonition. Doesn't say if this is an official act of church discipline, but at least it is an instruction to stay away from and avoid the influence of that person. And it is certainly possible that church leadership might have to ask or tell a person to leave. Now, as I was working on this, um, I read something in, in Northridge Baptist Church's constitution that coincides exactly with what we're talking about here today. And I think it's important for us to, to be aware of it. And also for me as interim pastor and for leaders in our church to say, you know what, yes, this is something that we, we are committed to. I'm reading from the Constitution. Scripture warns against the harm of a factious person, Titus 3.10, and of one who is disorderly, 2 Thessalonians 3.6. Persons who rebel against the spiritual leadership of the church, who endeavor to influence others against the leadership, and who make constant problems and trouble in the church, disturb its peace, and are its critics, are liable to church discipline. Such persons are to be admonished by the pastor and deacons, according to to, uh, to Titus 3.10, but if the attitude and actions persist, the deacons shall make a recommendation to the church body. The pastor and deacon shall act with love and grace, but with promptness to deal with any member who is obstructing the work or disturbing the peace of the church by espousing doctrine that's opposed to the doctrine of the church or by unscriptural conduct, such as gossip, falsehood, slander, conspiracy, immorality, or other actions deemed detrimental to the life of the church. So, so members and leaders are called to guard the church, 
I want to say to you as interim pastor here, I'm committed to that. I believe that others in positions of leadership in this church are as well. And that is what God calls all of us to do, to be vigilant about that. Now, we, we can second-guess ourselves sometimes and think, well, um, person who's acting this way, aren't they just passionate? Um, aren't they just expressing their views? And that's possible. But it's also possible that especially after that first and second admonition, if a person persists and continues in divisive behavior, is, is that something else comes into view. And that's what Paul identifies here in Titus chapter 3 and verse 11. He says, here's something that, that you can know. Knowing. So, so if a person has, has not heeded those admonitions, they persist in being divisive. He says, you know that such a person, this kind of person, is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Now again, this is strong language, isn't it? I mean, he is saying some very serious things about a person in this situation. So let's, let's understand what he's saying. The word warped means twisted. They're twisted in their thinking. I think a couple of ways that this can, uh, can, can show is that a person is, is focused on one doctrine in Scripture or one instruction in Scripture to the, the exclusion of or neglecting other doctrines or instructions in Scripture. Or I would say it this way, that a person may be so obsessed with being right in one area that they neglect something very important like loving their brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, let me show you something. Go to, uh, go to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. I think this is one way that a divisive person can become twisted in their thinking. He says in Matthew 7, 3, the Lord Jesus Christ says this in Matthew 7, verse 3, And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck, the, the, the speck of dust, right? The little, little tiny object. Let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, there's a plank in your own eye. Look at the strong language Jesus used in verse 5. Hypocrite. He says, you're a hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And this is where I think that, and again, I'm speaking from having pastored and having observed and worked through some difficult situations, that a person can become so consumed with an issue and being right or, or making their case that they're blind to the issues in their own life. Heart issues, relational issues. Remember, Paul urges us to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, to work at unity. So, I'll put it this way. A person cannot claim to be keeping the number one commandment Jesus told us about, which is to love who? God without also keeping the second commandment of loving others. So a person might say, I'm concerned about the church, I'm concerned about truth, but the reality is a person cannot claim to be loyal to God and love God and be nasty toward other people. 
or be divisive to the church. You can't keep them in contradiction that way. So that's where I think what Paul's talking about here of being warped in our thinking can, can happen. And, and then the other thing he says back in Titus 3, he says they're warped, you know this, they're warped and they're also sinning, so they're doing wrong. And, and the word warped is in a Greek tense, which means it's a fixed status. So by the time they've gone through two admonitions and they're persisting in this and they haven't changed, so they're, they're set in their way, they're, their mind is fixed, it's in a twisted condition. At this point now, they're sinning. This is a present tense verb, meaning it's ongoing, so they're doing this continually. So now they're in a condition where they are sinning against God and sinning against others. So we would say, here's what we know. This person is wrong in spirit and in action. And this is very serious. It is wrong to turn Christians against one another. It is sin to divide the body which Jesus Christ himself gave his blood to unite and to bring together as one. And he says, you you can know this at the end of verse 11 because they've incriminated themselves by their actions, by their unwillingness to change. They are self-condemned. Now again, this is, this, is, uh, this is a different kind of message, isn't it? This is not comfortable. This is not entertaining. Um, this is not inspiring. But this is a big part of the Christian life. And this is a very important element in church life. It's so important that Paul in his epistles addresses it over and over. Be right on truth, but also be right in your relationships with others. So as, as we've been talking about learning to live from the book of Titus, we, we in the church setting need to learn to live with differences and disagreements. We will have different perspectives, different preferences, and we have to learn to work through those. Satan is the master of discord, isn't he? He's the master of dividing Christians from one another. And he will take every advantage he can. And then within each of us, there's an element of pride and selfishness that we have to be on guard against as well. When when I was studying for um, my doctor of ministry degree, I wrote a paper, a thesis actually, on, I called it the 100-year church. I did a study of churches that have been in existence for 100 years or more. And uh, there were churches that would be like, like ours, right? So very solid in doctrine. Uh, we might call them fundamental in doctrine. Very conservative. And they had, had survived and uh, in some cases had struggled, but eventually had, had thrived over a period of 100 years or more. It was a fascinating study. And one of those churches was a Lebanon Baptist Church in Roswell, Georgia. It's still in existence, still faithful, still thriving today. And uh, as I read over the minutes of their meetings from the 1800s, I came across their business meetings. I came across an agenda that they used at every single business meeting. And at every business meeting in that agenda, the moderator would ask this question. Is the church at peace? Is the church at peace? And in that 
under that agenda item, they would take time to deal with whether there were problems, whether there were members who were in disobedience, whether there was anybody being disruptive to the unity of the church. And then when all that was done, they would declare the church at peace. What a great question. What a great checkpoint for a church. And, and I would bring that question to us today. Is the church at peace? Now, if there are issues, if there are problems if there are wrongs that need to be addressed and resolved, then we need to handle those in a, in a humble, constructive, personal way. That's God's way. If they're just disagreements over preferences and applications and things that we as believers can agree to disagree on, then we need to move forward in unity. That is critical to the health and the life of this church. And so I believe that's what God calls us to. The beauty of the church is that many different people with different backgrounds and perspectives are all brought together, and we have our faith in Christ and our life for him in common. And folks, that's unique, right? That is very unusual in the world in which we live, where there's so much contention and hostility. Treasure it, treasure it, thank God for it, and guard it and preserve it. Heavenly Father, thank you for time in your word today. Help each of us, I pray, to be open to what you are showing us. May your spirit search and examine our motivations, our conversations, our loyalties. Help each of us, I pray, to do our part, to work at keeping and maintaining and protecting and cultivating the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace here at Northridge Baptist Church. We pray these things because of Christ, in his name, amen.